women's stories matter, right? They have heft, they have importance. And so much of the way we talk about women has to do with the narrative of the victim instead of the triumph of the survivor. And that's really what I wanted to show with all these stories is that they're really just great stories about people whose backs are against the wall and who find a way to triumph, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of their community. That was Gail simak Lemont, journalist and chart-topping author. Gail's books tell the stories of bold women, women who upend expectations and defy authority. Her reporting has taken her to conflict zones around the world, and her latest book is about the most incredible women she's ever met. I'm Milan Verveer, and this is Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. We are bringing you 100 of the world's most inspiring and history-making women you need to hear. You may know Gail from her best-selling book, Ashley's War. It's about a secret army program that sent women soldiers on special ops raids in Afghanistan. It's currently being adapted into a movie that Reese Witherspoon is producing. Gail's latest book is out this week. The Daughters of Kobani is about a militia of young women who battled ISIS in Syria and won. And it's already being made into a TV series by the new production company founded by Hillary Clinton and Chelsea Clinton. Listen and learn why Gail Simak Limon is one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. I'm so thrilled to be here today with Gail Zamak Lamon, a wonderful journalist, author, a truly prolific writer, commentator. Gail, you have written about everything from presidential politics to public policy. But in your recent books, you really seem to focus on brave women. So how would you describe the kinds of women you write about? And, and why are you drawn to them? First of all, I'm so delighted to be with you. I'm so glad to be here with all of you today who are listening. Um, it really is, I think, a product of how I was raised and the community I grew up in. So I grew up in a community of single moms who all looked out for each other and who really uh, taught us to go to work every day and who taught us to look beyond what other people say about the world, but to create what we think. Uh, about the world and to make sure that we were never afraid to speak up for people who didn't have a voice. And I think growing up in that community really helped me look at things from an outsider's perspective that I keep very much today. And it truly is the fact that we have yet to see women's stories as universal. And I deeply want to change that because women's lives, women's stories are not the clothes we step over in the middle of the night on the way to the restroom. (laughs) Women's stories matter, right? They have heft, they have importance. And so much of the way we talk about women has to do with the narrative of the victim instead of the triumph of the survivor. And that's really what I wanted to show with all these stories is that they're really just great stories about people whose backs are against the wall and who find a way to triumph, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of their community. That's so beautifully said, and I know your books. Uh, and so I subscribe to what you said about uh, the the women that you write about, because they are truly models of resilience uh, and paying it forward. So let's talk about um, the books. 
Uh, one of my favorites is certainly The Dressmaker of Kirkana. Yeah. And uh, it's a wonderful story. And I met the woman that you uh, talk about in the book, uh, this very brave Afghan woman uh, who defied the Taliban and helped produce jobs and hope for many, many women uh, during the war um, that their work supported. Um, and maybe in talking about it, you can also talk about uh, women's entrepreneurship and why it is so important to economically empower women and what a difference that makes. I would say this, the economics piece is about a path to dignity and a path to opportunity and a path to hope. And I was fascinated by the idea. I was actually in my second year of business school at Harvard, and I wanted to keep writing about something I cared about. I'd left news to go to business school. And I wanted to write about women entrepreneurs because what do people need during and after war? They need hope, they need dignity, they need a job. And, you know, as somebody whose father faced a lot of joblessness and, and you know, whose mom, my, my mom really was uh, the constant uh, voice of economic opportunity, but of real struggle, right? You know, my mom worked two jobs, worked at the phone company during the day and sold Tupperware at night to take care of me. And so I always understood the power of money coming in the door to change lives. And I went to Afghanistan really because I wanted to write about women up against the most extreme odds who were starting businesses. And I met this young woman, Kamala, who was then on her uh, consulting business and we're sitting there interviewing you know, she's being interviewed by me and she's very gracious about it. And I said, well, can you tell me about this business you're trying to start and why, you know, why are you such an entrepreneur? And she looked at me and said, oh, Gail, I thought you knew this is my third business. My first business, I started under the Taliban and that business was amazing. We created, you know, jobs for people all around our neighborhood. And we really created, you know, something that was really special. The Taliban brought us terrible things, but it also brought us opportunity. Because if it weren't for the Taliban, I wouldn't have known I was such a good entrepreneur because they took <laughs> every other path of economic opportunity away. And truly, Milan, my jaw was just on the ground because she had taken everything we thought we know about the Taliban years, you know, women in blue shrouded, you know, in fear and never leaving the house and just thrown it on its head and taught me so much about all these girls who were breadwinners during years when they couldn't be on the street and really manufactured hope at a time when families were truly desperate, selling doors and windows and baby dolls. I mean, anything that had any economic value, people were selling to stay alive. So these girls really did make the difference between survival and starvation. Now, it's a remarkable story. And it also struck me in reading it that so often when we're thinking, writing about, knowing about women uh, who are going through conflict as the story in Af centered in Afghanistan portrays, we don't often think about the need for economic empowerment uh, and what a critical element that is. And the fact that women not only begin to see and experience how they can ensure that they can meet their livelihood needs, uh, but also go on to really make a difference in the society. Yes. And that, I think, is really a factor of, you know, the fact that the uh, development folks don't often think about entrepreneurship and the entrepreneurship folks don't often think about development. 
Exactly. And I do think that is changing. I think your work has changed that. I think some of these stories have, you know, done their small part to change that. But I mean, if you grow up without enough, you know that economics is the path to dignity. And I've always uh, been flummoxed by the fact that we don't talk about that. You can have all the rights in the world, but if you can't eat, tell me what good it does you. And economics is the path to getting people dignity that grows their voice, that helps them start advocating for themselves. And you and I have seen this on the ground in all kinds of places, Liberia, Sierra Leone, (laughs) Prince George's County, Maryland, where I grew up, right? I mean, the principle is the same. And Kamala said it best in 2005 when I first met her in this, you know, freezing room where that had lost power. And she was talking to me like, you know, basically like a... um, Richard Branson type character about business and what it meant and what she was going to do for Afghanistan. And she said, money is power for women and earning income earns respect. So important. And truly, as you said, the pathway, the portal to so much more. Now there's another great book uh, that you've written. In fact, it's going to be made into a movie. I'm so excited for you about that. And it's called Ashley's War. Uh, and this book is a little different. Women in the U.S. Military Special Operations uh, and one who sadly died. So what was particularly special and memorable about these women uh, whom you got to know and, and portray so vividly? Gosh, Ashley's War is a story of an all-women special operations team that was recruited for Army Ranger and Navy SEAL operations while women were still officially banned from ground combat. So here were young women recruited from the Army Guard Reserve who were recruited in either March or um, June, trained in August, and by late August into September, seeing the kind of combat experienced by less than 5% of the entire United States military. And their nation had no idea they existed. And to spend time with them, Milan, was to be like in the, in the most world's most public secret society. You know, this was a group of young women that was often, you know, mistaken either for nurses or a softball team when they were out together uh, that just had were the only ones who understood what they had seen and done at the tip of the spear. Right. They were each other's. Um, baby shower hosts and priests and rabbis and confessors and divorce uh, coaches and uh, you know, career therapists who were the people that understood one another better than anybody else because they had gone to Afghanistan, served on direct action, which is really the, the most dangerous kinds of combat operations inside the special operations community, missions, um, all while women officially weren't there. And it was really their story. The Ashley's War book, the story of Ashley's War is not about anything other than what it felt and looked like to be a young woman who answered when her country asked. And while policy still hadn't caught up with what was required on the battlefield. And there are so many of these heroes uh, that are in one way every day in our life's impression, but aren't recognize for the exceptional and extraordinary uh, work that they do. Why did you call it Ashley's War? You know, it was really because 
this war, her service happened in a program built for the shadows. Her life exemplified so many young women who found in this mission their chance to be alongside the best of the best, serving their nation at the heart of what America was attempting to do in Afghanistan that time. And she forever changed both her family because of her loss, but also her friends and history because her death threw into a very public spotlight a program that had been built for the shadows. And I was uh, with uh, the two first two women to graduate from Army Ranger School at the Arlington Memorial uh, Women's Memorial, Arlington Cemetery's Women's Memorial on Veterans Day in 2016. And to realize all these young women who were making history on their nation's behalf, one standing on the shoulders of the other who stood on the shoulders of the, the women who come before them. And that this really, the story became about how her life, not her death, changed forever, everybody around her, and also the path of what happened in terms of what got open, what jobs were open to women. Because at that time, if you can imagine it, women could not serve in the infantry, women could not serve in artillery, women could not serve in certain roles inside special operations, and that has all changed now. And it is fascinating for any of our listeners who at some point post-COVID uh, find themselves in in Washington to go to Arlington uh, right there on the margins of the cemetery and visit this museum. It's a stunning uh, history in many ways that's captured in the stories of the pioneering women and then the younger women who, uh, as you so well tell us, uh, are changing um, the role of women in the military today. What is the timetable for the for the movie? It's an excellent question. So um, Leslie Linka Glatter from Homeland is directing. Oh. And it's just an incredible team. Reese Witherspoon producing, uh, Bruna Papandrea, who did The Undoing, and some other things that your uh, listeners might know, uh, as well as Big Little Lies with Reese, um, is also producing uh, Natalie Krinsky. So we, we really do have just an incredible team on this at Universal, which has been terrific. So I think COVID will determine the shape, but um, things are definitely moving forward. Uh, in fact, we have a meeting coming r- right up uh, that I think will help us know exactly the timeline. But I-, I would say you'll see it before too long. Well, congratulations. Uh, it's really terrific next sequence in the story of Ashley's War to have this come out uh, in film. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear will be back after this short break. And speaking of congratulations, uh, you've just released Daughters of Kobani, which I really want to talk about, your new book. Uh, And um, I understand, Gail, that at first you didn't really want to write this book. Uh, So what happened? Because it's just been released and it's very exciting. Well, it it is an incredible story, possibly the most unlikely story I've ever told. And it was the truth was, I was, like most Americans, exhausted by war and wasn't sure I could do justice to another story about America's wars 
when so many times it feels like you're the only one who cares. And I thought, okay, I'm going to be home. I'm going to be normal and be with my kids. You know, I'm going to do what other people do. Um, and I'm going to write about uh, the community of single moms I grew up with. Uh, and then one of the young women from Ashley's War called me. She was in uh, special operations. She'd moved on to another role, even more, um, you know, I would say uh, top secret or even more top secret is probably not the right word. I'd say even more um, challenging. Yeah, even more challenging, also even closer to combat. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she called me and said, you have to come to Syria, Gail. This story is unbelievable. There are all these women bringing it to ISIS, and they're winning, and they're leading, and no one seems to think it's a big deal. They're leading men in war, and we keep looking at each other, the American women going like, what's going on here? Uh, But no one else thinks anything about it. And these gals have amazing stories. And they are leading the fight against ISIS. And who are they? And so my job, right? I mean, that was exactly my question, Milan. I said, first of all, no, (laughs) I'm not going back to Syria, but tell me who they are. And she said, there are these Syrian Kurdish women that nobody had ever heard of previously who um, have this ideology that has women's emancipation and women's rights right at their center. And they formed in 2013 an all-women unit to protect their neighborhoods. And they are absolutely front and center in this fight. And they're front and center in working with the Americans to defeat ISIS. And I thought about it, thought about it. And let it I, you know, let me hang up. I was actually picking my kids up from preschool at the time. And I you know, hung up the WhatsApp and I, and I thought about it and thought about it. And I was like, I got it. I got to find out more. This is, you know, this is absolutely uh, kind of an unbelievable story. I want to understand more before I commit. Uh, to saying no. And of course, I called her back two weeks later and said, all right, tell me more. I have to know and, and went to see it in the summer of 2017. And the moment I saw it on the ground, Milan, I just said, we have to know this story. What was different about it? What, what did you see that you'd never seen anywhere else in terms of these women? Milan, you have never seen women more comfortable with power and less apologetic about being in charge anywhere in the world. And we don't have in our visual library a group of 25 or 30 young women in fatigues with smiley face socks and Timex watches and AK-47s going out to defeat the Islamic State. And how did this come to pass that they found themselves in this situation uh, and were doing what they were doing? You know, answering that question of how this came to be is the story of the daughters of Kobani. How was it that this group of women with this ideology that would be considered far reaching, including in the United States, with women's rights, women's equality, right at the center, not at the periphery, but right at the center, um, ended up being the ground force that partnered with United States special operations to be the infantry fighting the men who bought and sold women, right? And this clash of worldviews that went on every single day between these women committed to women's rights and ISIS, which truly had women's enslavement at the center of what it did. Um, And how did that come to be? And the truth was, it was, as your listeners will see in the book, it was a product of the Americans' hunt for a Goldilocks partner force, right? One that was effective and disciplined and committed to putting lives on the line 
to take terrain from the Islamic State and hold terrain once they won it from ISIS and would stop short of toppling Assad because the Americans at that point had no appetite for further uh, regime change in the region, nor did it want to be responsible for what came next in Syria. And for the Kurds, this group of Syrian Kurds, um, there was not a sense that they knew that whoever came after Assad would be better when it came to minority rights, for which they had been battling, and of basic rights, which they had been deprived uh, for generations inside Syria, right? These Kurds could not, you know, they could not speak their language, name their children what they wanted, uh, teach in their own language, celebrate their holidays. Um, There were problems with property rights. There were problems with what roles you could take uh, in a university or in government. And so all of this started as an exercise to just protect their neighborhoods and keep bad people out of their neighborhoods once the Syrian civil war started. And what it became was the most effective fighting force against the Islamic State. So fascinating. And we know so little about it. And therefore, we need this book and we all need to uh, uh, to read it and, and hear and uh, have a greater exposure to these remarkable women. So this book is just out. Um, we are living through the Me Too uh, world. What's it like to bring a book like this out uh, in this environment? You know, Milan, I would ask you, you know, how you've seen your work change. I think you now see a recognition that women's stories, women's lives have heft. And we'll know we've really won when you don't have to call them women's stories. You can just call them stories. Exactly. Right. And, and the issue has been that structurally we have not seen women's stories as weighing the same as men's. Men's stories could be universal, but women's story, a story with women was seen as a women's story, which meant that if you told a story that had no women characters in it, it could be a story. And if you had two women characters in your story, it was a women's story. Mm-hmm. And all of that is shifting. We're not there yet, but we're making steps every single day. You know, it used to feel like hiking up an icicle to bring a story like this out. This story, I'm so deeply proud of Daughters of Kobani in that it has won endorsements from both Elizabeth Gilbert, who just could not be kinder uh, of E. Pray Love, and Admiral McRaven, who called it one of the most compelling military histories of our time, and will be excerpted in Marie Claire and in military time. Interesting. <laughs> that is a really different thing to see. People from all walks of life, Angelina Jolie, General Votel, Azadamovan, you know, people who, uh, Hassan Hassan, people who would not normally be together on a book, um, get behind a story. I think that's because slowly we are shifting the way we see our histories and who gets to play a starring role in them. Well, let's hope that continues to come to full fruition. You had mentioned when you were talking about these remarkable women you mentioned the words women's rights. Yes. Yeah. And of course you and I have worked on, talked about, been engaged in advancing gender equality and women's rights for a long time. But I wonder, did these women who were fighting ISIS, did the words women's rights ever come forward from them? Did they understand the concept? Help us understand how they saw 
uh, what they were doing in terms of, of the role of women. So, and, and your, re- your listeners will see in the book, at the very beginning of my experience, we were in Raqqa going to, this was during the ISIS fight, which was actually, by the way, the, the scariest front line I've ever visited. And for these young women, this was their commute to work every day their drive to the front line. So they're unfazed driving in the Hilux truck <laughs> to the pickup and, and your your listeners will be there in the prologue of the book in the first chapter kind of going with me to the front line. And, um, you know, I, I asked them, you know, what do you, you know, what motivates you? And they're like, we're, they said to me, you know, we're writing our own history now. We are fighting, not just for women in this region, but for women all around the world. Interesting. It was so interesting because I've just never heard, you know, and also to hear that on the way to a front line is entirely, uh, entirely different than, and they said to me, you know, one of the political leaders, uh, Fauzo Yusuf, who's in the book, uh, and you see this in the book, she talks about how everybody told them to wait on women's rights in their founding documents, you know, don't, which are recognized by nobody, but hold sway in their sliver of, uh, Northeastern Syria. And she said, everybody said, wait on women's rights. And we said, no, if we don't get them now, we'll never get them. And they insisted. And in their founding documents, women are mentioned more than a dozen times. Equality, uh, no child marriage, no dowry, poor equality. Women have agency in their own lives. I mean, all of these things that would honestly be far reaching anywhere. Anywhere, for sure. Uh, but, But one story that I did want to tell you is that I was interviewing young Arab women who had come to join the all women's force. And they're toward the end of the book. Your listeners will, will recognize them in this story. So I go to interview them and we drive for hours to go. And these young women had uh, joined the all women's force. And where were they from? Were they from Syria? They were from uh, actually from Raqqa. So absolutely young Arab women from Raqqa. And we drive to go to their training center, which was not in Raqqa, but just a little bit outside. And as we're sitting there, uh, I asked one of the young women, why did you come? How, what made you join? And she's giving me kind of standard answers. You can tell she's never been interviewed, never met a foreigner. She's very shy. She's looking down, you know, barely looking at us. And then finally, I start thinking about the way this force works and how when people join, they start with this ideological training. That is the teachings of Abdullah Ocalan, which is why they're in Turkish crosshairs, but and also this idea of women's equality, which is part of his teaching. Right? And I said to this young girl, she's probably 18, 19, she had just turned 19. And I said to her, had you ever heard the phrase women's rights? And she looked at me and finally I broke through and she started laughing. And then we all started laughing in the interview. And she looked at me. She said, of course, I had never heard that idea. She said, in fact, I didn't even believe it when they told me that this was a thing. I had to look it up. And then I went home and I told my mother and my grandmother, my cousins, and they didn't believe me. They were sure I was making it up, that there was this whole idea of women's rights. And we all started laughing because I thought, you know, that is where things change. And they were exemplars of women's rights being realized. These young women who had, you know, two of them had really defied their family to join this all women's force. The family had come around uh, in both of their cases, but a lot of other young women, their families hadn't, and they'd eventually had to leave or 
some of the women commanders would go to their house, as you'll see in the book, to try to, you know, convince them that there was, they could, family could come anytime, that they weren't doing anything that was uh, against their faith uh, or their, their traditions. And it was really fascinating to see that concept dawn on people that there was this notion that women actually had the rights to education. Uh, to deciding who they marry, all of that. And, and you know, two of our characters in the book um, were young women who actually were deprived of both of those choices. Just fascinating. I can't wait, uh, really, to, to read the book, which now uh, I will have the chance, as our listeners will, to do so. So, Gail, we're just about out of time, and I, I hate to have to end this conversation. But as I think about the three books that we've been discussing and most importantly, the people, the women about whom you write, uh, whether they're in the midst of conflict in Afghanistan, uh, creating economic opportunity, whether there are U.S. military special operations women doing extraordinary work uh, and being extremely brave in what they have to do, or whether it's your latest uh, talking about uh, and writing about these women who are fighting ISIS and exemplify the personification of women's rights there in a corner of Syria. What is it about these amazing women? What makes you optimistic and gives you hope uh, and why you write about them? I am motivated in all the decisions I make about what I do by the idea that suffocated opportunity is the enemy of global stability. And if you look at what these stories have in common, it's young people underestimated from the outside who rise to the moment, not just for their own sake, but for the sake of their communities and for tapping into opportunity for others all around them. And saying that just because something has always been doesn't mean it has to be. And that, to me, is what gives me so much hope. All the women who raised me against every obstacle who, you know, could barely pay for uh, the lives we led by the end of each month, but somehow managed to, who always taught me, my mother always said, on a scale of major world tragedies, yours is not a three. <laughs> and it just taught me, you know, you keep pressing forward because there is somebody whose voice you haven't lifted up, who needs to be heard, who deserves to be heard, and who you can make a difference for. And watching all these women who could have had very different lives, far more comfortable lives than the one they chose, but choosing to say, no, I'm going to make change and I'm going to make change not just for myself, but for all who follow. I mean, to me, that absolutely is inspiration. And I'm so excited for people to read Daughters of Kobani because I think it is, you know, inspiration from a a corner of the world we don't necessarily expect to find it. For sure not. And it really is about young women who just said no more. Well, I'm so grateful to you for what you do, for putting a spotlight on women who more often than not um, don't have a spotlight put on them for the extraordinary uh, work that they do, um, and for bringing us so much inspiration, particularly uh, in times when we need inspiration and we need to muster our own capacity for resilience. So I, I hope so much that our listeners uh, will buy 
uh, the Daughters of Kobani, uh, newly out, uh, and be as inspired uh, as we all are, I'm sure, listening to you, Gail. Thank you, Milan, and thank you for all you do for so many. If you ever want to see what female courage looks like, just pick up one of Gail Simak Lemon's books. Here's what stood out to me in that conversation. First, it's awe-inspiring to hear Gail's stories of female bravery. In The Daughters of Kabani, her heroines are thrilling role models, comfortable with their own power and unafraid to lead. Second, the Kurdish women fighters in Daughters of Kabani are battling not just ISIS, they're battling for the rights of all women in the region, for the right to things like an education, or deciding who they want to marry. Finally, as Gail says, you can have all the rights in the world, but if you can't eat, it doesn't do you any good. In other words, economic empowerment is the path to dignity and safety, and women's entrepreneurship can be the vehicle to make that happen. Tune in next Thursday to hear about our next featured woman, and discover why she's one of Seneca's 100 Women to Hear. Seneca's 100 Women to Hear is a collaboration between the Seneca Women Podcast Network and iHeartRadio with support from founding partner P&G. Have a great day.